0: The Mysteries of Dr. John Thorndike. Thorndike is the original fictional forensic detective from the early 1900s, using science to aid the art of detection to bring criminals to justice. This time presenting The Blue Scarab, written by R. Austin Freeman, adapted for radio by Heather Elliott.
1: Thank you for seeing us, Dr. Thorndike. I was afraid you wouldn't.
2: Every case needs a chance to be resolved.
1: It really is a matter of robbery more than anything.
3: Not an ordinary robbery, Daddy.
1: Edie is right, sir. I- I'd like your opinion on the matter. The police don't have much hope.
2: Well, what is the matter at hand?
1: About two weeks ago, a building on our property was set on fire as a distraction, and a deed box was taken from a cabinet in my study.
2: Mm-hmm. What was the layout of the room? It'll give me an idea of your movements and possibly the intruders.
3: We have French windows, They were left open for the breeze. I mean, anyone in the garden could see into the room, and any active person would have no trouble climbing over the garden wall. It's quite short.
2: It could be a case of a casual prowler watching through the window and assuming the lock case held valuables. Was there anything of considerable value taken from the case?
1: Uh, To a thief, nothing at all. Some share certificates made out to me, a lease, a few agreements, some family photographs and a small box containing an old family letter and a scarab.
2: And the scarab? Tell me about that.
1: Most likely blue glass imitation. It was about an inch and a half long. But let me finish the story before I go into more details. The robbery was on... which day was it, Edie?
3: Tuesday, the 7th of June. We talked to the police, but nothing happened until Wednesday the 15th, when we received a registered parcel with a Southampton postmark. Everything
1: from the deed box was returned, except the scarab. This rather mysterious letter was included.
4: Ordinary envelope? Typewritten address?
1: Unusual wax seal. Is that an imprint of a scarab on it? It's the same size, so I would imagine it is.
2: Hmm, an excellent impression. All the hieroglyphics are perfectly readable.
1: The fact is I don't know anything about hieroglyphics, but as far as I can judge, they look the same. What do you think, Edie?
3: They look the same to me as our scarab. Though, it could be any other hieroglyphics, and I wouldn't know.
2: There's a watermark on the newer paper. You see that, Jervis? It appears to be a Belgian manufacture. What do you think? I agree. This letter addressed to
4: my dear old pal simply states he is returning trifles removed in error and the curio is being held by his respected uncle. He hopes that temporary loss is not an inconvenience, and that he may be able to return it later. Signed,
1: Rodolfo.
3: But we don't know anyone named Rodolfo. He
1: seems to be a facetious sort of person, this thief.
2: (laughs) He does. This letter would appear to be something of a prank. Still, this is quite normal. He's returned the worthless and kept the one thing that has any sort of negotiable value. Are you certain the scarab is not more valuable
1: than you've assumed? I've shown it to an expert. Not only is it an imitation, but a bad one at that. The inscription is just a collection of characters jumbled together without meaning.
3: Father, you haven't given Dr. Thorndyke quite all the facts. He ought to know about Uncle Reuben.
1: <laughs> it's just a family rumor, Edie. Probably
2: all nonsense. Oh, let us have it at any rate. We may get some light from it.
3: Uh,
1: since you insist. The story goes back to my great-grandfather Silas Pfeiffer and his doings during the war with France around the late 1790s. It seems he commanded a privateer, of which he and his brother Reuben were joint owners.
3: On their last cruise they acquired a valuable collection of jewels. Not honestly, we suspect.
1: There are no documents to prove their story. Just a vague and sketchy oral tradition. Tell away, Mr. Pfeiffer. The story goes that after selling their ship, they bought Shawstead Manor and the adjoining farm. Most of their loot had been split already, but the jewels were
3: kept aside to be dealt with later. Both of them were gamblers, and according to one of Reuben's servants they were playing one night and decided to finish up by gambling for the whole collection of jewels. They played late into the night with Reuben winning.
1: Silas accused him of cheating and they started to quarrel. Reuben sent the servant away for the night and the next morning it was discovered that Reuben and the jewels had disappeared. There were distinct traces of blood in the room where the brothers had been playing.
3: Silas professed he knew nothing but a strong suspicion arose that he had murdered his brother. He disappeared soon after, and even his wife had no idea where he was, until years later, a few months before his death, he returned home and left the scarab and that other letter with his wife.
2: The old letter, I presume? A- am I to read it?
1: Well, certainly, if you think it worthwhile. <clears throat>
2: Cairo, 4th of March, 1833. My dear son Charles, I am sending you as my last gift a valuable scarab and a few words of counsel. Believe me, there is much wisdom in the lore of old Egypt. Make it your own. Treasure the scarab as a precious inheritance. Handle it often, but show it to none. Give your uncle Reuben an honest burial. It is your duty, and you will have your reward. He robbed your father, but he shall make restitution. Farewell, your affectionate father, Silas Pfeiffer.
4: The instructions from Silas seem clear enough. How have they been carried out?
1: They haven't. Charles, my grandfather, decided not to meddle. This seemed to be a frank admission that Silas killed his brother and Charles didn't want to reopen the scandal. It plainly states to give Uncle
2: Reuben an honest burial. But where the deuce is he? It's plainly hinted that whoever gives the body an honest burial will stand to benefit. And the word restitution seems to suggest a clue to the location of the jewels.
1: Silas doesn't give the slightest hint. He talks like his son knew where the body was.
3: Even then, what of the jewels? Whose property were they? They were almost certainly stolen property. Then Reuben apparently got them by fraud, and Silas got them back by robbery and
1: murder. If my grandfather Charles had discovered them, he would have to have given them up to Reuben's sons. Yet they weren't strictly Reuben's property. No one would have had an undeniable claim to them. Something could have been worked out with a good barrister, I'm sure.
3: That's not the case now. Reuben's grandson, Arthur, father's cousin, died recently. He left the old farmhouse and most of the estate to a nephew, but made me residuary legatee. Whatever rights Reuben had over the jewels are now vested in me.
1: Edie will become Silas's heir, too, when I die. I may as well tell you, there's a heavy mortgage on our property and very little capital. Uncle Reuben's jewels would have made the old home secure for her,
2: This is all very interesting, but what do you want me to do?
1: Plain robbery is generally outside of our service. My house has been robbed and my premises set fire to. The police say they can do nothing. I want the robber traced and punished and I want the scarab back. There may be value in it after all. In any case, it's a family heirloom and I'd hate to lose it.
2: Well, there are several curious features that seem to make this investigation worthwhile. I'll ask you to leave both letters for me to examine, and I'll want to explore the estate. Uh, Perhaps tomorrow, if that's convenient?
3: That'd be lovely, Dr. Thorndyke. Thank you.
1: Who else knows about the scarab, the letter, and the history? I can't really say. I once showed them to my cousin Arthur, and he may have told his family. I didn't treat the matter as a secret. No reason to. Quite the romantic story, but I agree with
4: the police... Mighty little to go on.
2: Ah, there might have been less if our sporting friend hadn't thought so highly of himself. This recent letter from Southampton is ripe with clues.
4: I suppose you'll start by examining the letter from Silas?
2: Yes, among other things.
4: What else is there?
2: You'll see. While I do that, take a look at the recent letter. Uh, Don't forget to... um... Take
4: a photograph of the watermark, assess the quality of paper, check for fingerprints, Identify the typewriter from its fonts and look for defects. It's the standard rundown.
2: Good, good. And don't forget to write a report for the file. Excellent work on your report yesterday, Jervis. You detected enough defects in the lettering to identify a typewriter, should we be fortunate enough to get a hold of it. The paper is very distinctive as well.
4: That's all well and grand, but I don't see the relevance yet we have no suspect to match fingerprints
2: with. Do you have those?
4: Yeah. Photographs of each fingerprint I found on the back of the newer letter. Most were very faint and shadowy, but I pulled a few clear ridge patterns.
2: Well, that's my left thumb. I don't see yours anywhere. This small one is presumably Miss Pfeiffer's. We must take fingerprints of her and her father when we arrive. Then we shall know which belonged to the robber.
4: I don't see why you went through the trouble of tracing a section of the Pfeiffer's place.
2: Just bring the entire map. I dislike cutting up maps. With just the tracing of the portion of the map we need, you can get the lay of the land, so to speak, without having to muck about the property. Nice, neat, tidy, accurate, and portable. We only need the area I traced. For what? The robber must have come in and out somewhere, among other things.
4: And the hieroglyphs. Six tracings. You're making elaborate preparations to identify the scarab. It seems to me that you're counting your chickens before they hatch.
2: <laughs> I have a presentiment we shall get that scarab. At any rate, we ought to be prepared to identify it straight away if we do.
1: Uh, it's most kind of you to come down, but you're too late. Too late for what? Well, there, look at that. That was done last night or early this morning.
2: I'm not sure what you infer by that.
1: Infer? Why, I infer that whomever dug this hole in my meadow was searching for Uncle Reuben and the Lost
2: Jewels. I am inclined to agree. He happened to search in the wrong place, but that's his affair.
3: The wrong place? How do you know that, Dr. Thorndike?
2: Because I believe I know the place, and it isn't here. Can you get a few men with picks and shovels, or have we better do it ourselves?
1: That would be better. We don't want to involve others if we can help it. I'll be back in a jiffy with some tools.
3: I can't imagine how you found out where Uncle Reuben is buried.
4: We haven't found him yet, Miss Fifa.
2: I'll go into the details of that later for your and your father's benefit. Jervis, have a look at my tracings and see what you can see.
3: What tracings?
2: Dr. Thorndike made tracings from maps of your property he got from the records office. Oh, what are the three circles with spokes? <laughs> Another advantage of a tracing of a map, Jervis. I've been able to mark up these sets of bearings regardless of the obstructions, such as those young trees behind Miss Edie. They wouldn't have been there in Silas's day. Even if there are recent obstructions preventing us from taking bearings, we can still find the spot by measurements with the land chain or tape.
3: Why have you got three different locations marked?
2: They're the imaginable places. Number one is most likely... Two less likely, but still possible, and three is impossible. Number three. That's the hole that got dug right there last night. Correct, and it's completely the wrong spot. We want the most likely one, and that is number one among those young trees.
3: Are you sure?
2: I plan to check the bearings with my compass and tripod, and then we will be sure.
1: Here's your garden tools, Doctor. I won't hold everything up asking for explanations, Dr. Thorndyke, but I am utterly mystified. You must tell us how you know this is the spot.
2: (laughs) Naturally. Now, Miss Edie, why don't you make yourself comfortable in the shade? We've got a lot of digging to do and there's no tidy way to do that.
3: Nonsense. I'm more invested in this than you are. Hand me a shovel. I can clear away the loose dirt for you.
2: (laughs) Oh, my wife would like you. While I cut the turf away, Jervis and Pfeiffer can go at the earth under it with picks. Miss Edie, if you would stack the dirt just behind you. Here? Yes, right there.
1: How far down have we got to go?
2: Bodies are generally buried at six feet. Jervis, hand me that telescope if you would. It's by my case. Here? See something interesting? Perhaps.
1: Where are we digging?
2: That surveyor's mark on the ground. We might have to dig a good way around it. The compass is only a rough instrument.
1: Oh, my oh. Huh. Well, that's a job done. You think we're getting close? <laughs> Closer? Edie, I think a jug of lemonade and four tumblers would be useful. Unless our visitors prefer beer.
4: Uh, lemonade for me, please. The same if you would.
3: I'll be back in a few minutes. Don't make any exciting discoveries without me, Daddy.
4: You seem greatly interested in that farmhouse, Thorndyke.
2: I am... Um... Uh, Take the telescope and look at the window in the right-hand gable, but keep under the tree so you won't be seen.
4: Right-hand gable. We're being watched. He's got binoculars. Did you see that? What's the matter, doctors? I believe we are being spied upon. Don't suppose it matters. We are
1: on your land, aren't we? Yes, but we still don't want spectators. Let me see if I know the fellow. (laughs) Ha-ha. That's Harold Bloom. My cousin Arthur's nephew, the one who inherited the farmhouse. He seems mightily interested in us. But then small things interest one in the country.
4: Here's Edie with the drinks. My, but that lemonade looks refreshing.
1: I found something. Looks like a bone. What's your opinion, Dr. Thorndyke?
2: Ah, definitely bone. A large right toe, to be precise. We've been very fortunate to get so near at the very first trial. If that's the
4: toe, we can assume the skeleton lies outside this pit. But we'd better excavate your corner carefully to see exactly how the bones lie.
2: Ah, there's the rest of the right foot. Here's the ends of the leg bones and a portion of the left foot. Ah, we can see now how the skeleton lies. Now what? We extend the excavation in that direction. Precisely, Jervis, but there's only room for one to work down here. I think Jervis and Mr. Pfeiffer had better dig the extended area down from the surface while I continue with the bones here.
1: We found him, Edie. We found Uncle
2: Reuben.
3: Yes, but it seems rather ghoulish to be gloating over poor Uncle Reuben's body.
1: Oh, I know. It isn't reverent, but I wasn't the one who killed him. It was a long time ago.
2: We've just about got it. Back up a few steps. Let me clear away the dirt from around the head.
3: It's tilted. Like there's something under it. A small chest.
4: Booty won by fraud. Retrieved by violence. Hidden with the dead witness.
3: Rather dreadful when you put it that way.
2: Ah, it is dreadful, Miss Edie, it is. Seems I've come just in the nick of time. Who are you? You've been spying on us. That chest is mine, you know. And the remains, too, I suppose.
1: You can have Uncle Reuben if you want, Harold, but that chest belongs to Edie.
2: I'm Reuben's heir through my Uncle Arthur, and I take possession of this property and remains.
1: Edie is Arthur's residuary legatee, and this is the residue of the estate.
2: Rubbish! How do you know where to look, anyway? Simple enough. Here, I'll show you the map. This one. This isn't it. Isn't it? Oh, of course not. My mistake. I've given you the wrong one. This is the map.
3: What is he doing, Dr. Jervis?
4: I do believe he's getting fingerprints.
3: He's just sharpening a
2: pencil. This is all well and I'll good, but how do find out about these bearings? I'm afraid I can't give you any further information. Perhaps I'll compel you to. But at any rate, I forbid you to lay hands on my property. Now listen to me, Mr. Bloom. Stop this nonsense. You've played a risky game, and you've lost. How much you've lost, I can't say until I know whether Mr. Pfeiffer intends to prosecute. Prosecute? What the deuce do you mean by prosecute? I mean that on the 7th of June, you entered Pfeiffer's house and stole his property, some of which you've returned. You still have the deed box and scarab. Sheer
3: madness, and you know it.
2: Well, this is for you to settle, Mr. Pfeiffer. I hold conclusive evidence that Mr. Bloom stole your deed box. If you decide to prosecute, I shall produce that evidence in court, and he will certainly be convicted.
1: I'm astounded, but I don't want to be vindictive. Look here, Harold, hand over the scarab, and we'll say no more about it.
2: Ah, you can't do that, Mr. Fiver. The law does not allow you to compound a robbery. He can return the property if he pleases, and you can do as you think best about prosecuting. But you can't make conditions.
3: Madness! Are you certain it was Harold, Dr. Thorndyke?
4: I'm quite certain. If he says he can make a case, he can.
3: Well, that'll have to be
1: dealt with after careful thought. But first, let's open this chest. There's a crowbar in the garden shed.
3: It's sat for a hundred years, Daddy. It can wait until we're washed up and have had dinner. Just look at us. Covered in dirt, grave digging in the back meadow. It's shocking.
1: <laughs> Always the sensible one. Lead the way to the house, Edie.
3: Dr. Jervis, earlier you said Dr. Thorndike has conclusive proof that Harold is the thief. I've been puzzling it over all evening and I just can't see how. several reasons.
4: I examined the envelope and letters from your mysterious Rudolfo and identified not only the watermark of the company who produced the paper, but also the machine used to type the notes.
3: How is that possible?
4: Thorndike has an extensive collection of manufacturing marks and an entire portfolio of indexed typewriter models with samples of the printing. It's simple enough to cross-reference the style of font to determine the make and model number of the machine.
3: How does that help?
4: The typewriter used in this case was a Corona brand fitted with the elite typeface. The alignment of the keys are noticeably defective in the small A, U, and M. If we were to find a similar typewriter among Harold's possessions...
3: And if it had the same defects, there would be a strong reason to believe it came from him.
4: Precisely. We also found fingerprints along the
3: edges of the paper. You said Dr. Thorndyke was getting fingerprints from the map Harold held. Was he using the shavings from the pencil to do that?
4: Yes. I didn't examine it, but he was certain the prints from the map matched the ones we found and photographed on the mysterious letter from Rudolfo.
3: This is all very interesting, Dr. Jervis. Do you suppose one day everyone will know about using fingerprints to solve crimes?
4: I like to think so. Careful observation and application of all facts have saved many
2: unjust punishment. Try once more, Jervis. The rusty clasps are beginning to give.
4: There we go! It's open!
1: Small canvas bags? Five or six of them. Handmade from old sails, by the looks of it. Feels like gravel inside, but it has to be the jewels.
3: Here's a wooden bowl to pour them into, Daddy. (gasps) Rubies? Emeralds? Sapphires? (gasps) Diamonds? Oh, there's so many! I can't believe it!
2: They're of exceptional size. Rough cut, but fine specimens. No
4: doubt from some shrine or other place heavily embellished. The question is,
1: what are we to do with them? I don't want to leave them out for the taking.
2: I suggest Dr. Jervis stay the night to help you guard them, and in the morning you take them up to London and deposit them into your bank. Are you agreeable to that, Jervis? I think that would be all right. If you would send Juliet
4: to Telegram to let her know I'll be home in the morning.
2: I'll drop by the house myself. How does that sound, Mr. Pfeiffer? Miss Eadie? I agree to the assistance, but that chest is too
1: conspicuous to be carrying around. If we only had that confounded deed box to take them to the bank.
2: <laughs> There's a deed box on the cabinet behind you.
1: Is there? It's come back the way it went. Harold must have slipped it in the window while we had dinner. I'm glad he made restitution. When I look at that bowl of gemstones and think what he must have narrowly missed, I don't feel inclined to be hard on him. I suppose the scarab is inside the deed box, not that it matters now.
3: It's here in an envelope, Daddy. Will you look at it, Dr. Thorndyke? Is it of any value? I can't see how it could have any connection to Uncle Reuben's burial site, since you found him and the jewels without it.
1: By the way, I don't know if I can ask or not, but how on earth did you find the jewels? It looked like black magic to me.
2: (laughs) Oh, nothing magical at all, Mr. Pfeiffer. But it was a perfectly simple, straightforward problem. But Miss Edie is wrong. We had the wax impression of the scarab, and the scarab was the key to the riddle. You see, Silas's letter and the scarab formed together a sort of uh, intelligence test.
1: Who did they? Then he drew a blank every generation.
4: I rather think his descendants were a little lacking in uh, enterprise.
1: No one wanted to dig up family skeletons. Figuratively, that is.
2: <laughs> well, Silas's instructions were perfectly plain. Whomever would find the treasure must first acquire some knowledge of Egyptian lore. But what's this about Egyptology? Don't tell me you know ancient Egyptian. Oh, no, just an elementary knowledge of hieroglyphics. Enough to enable me to spell them out when they are used alphabetically. Anyone can learn the alphabet in just a few hours.
3: You do have the most interesting hobbies, Dr. Thorndike.
2: Well, I I could see at once the hieroglyphics on the envelope seal formed English words. The second set of signs spelled Reuben. So I took another look at the first set and realized it was Uncle, spelled U-N-K-L. Of course, when Miss Edie spoke of the connection between the Scarab and Uncle Reuben, the murder was out. You translated the Scarab? Last night, I made a careful tracing off a photograph of the hieroglyphics, then translated them into our own alphabet.
4: When did you do that? You didn't have the lettering last night?
3: Oh dear. The spelling is atrocious. Uncle Reuben is in the mill field, sat six feet down, Church Spur north, ten thirty east, Dingle south, Gable north, Addy forty fifth west, God King George.
1: This translation must have demanded a very profound knowledge of Egyptian writing.
2: Not at all. Like I said, anyone could master the Egyptian alphabet simply enough. The language, of course, is quite another matter. The spelling of is a little crude, but it is quite intelligible and does silence great credit considering how little was known in his time.
4: Mr. Pfeiffer, that expert you took it to, did he speak English? Very little. There's your answer as to why it wasn't discovered sooner. The words are English words, imperfectly spelled at that. So the hieroglyphs must have
2: appeared as mere nonsense. He was right about the scare of being an imitation. And there's another thing. How was it that
1: Harold was so wrong about the location? The directions are clear enough. All you had to do was go out there with a compass and take the bearings just as they
2: were given. But that's exactly what he did, and hence the mistake. He was apparently unaware of the phenomenon known as the secular variation of the compass.
3: Secular what? What? I'm afraid you'll need to explain more plainly.
2: (laughs) Well, most compasses point to magnetic north, although a few point to true north. But magnetic north changes over time. When Reuben was buried around 1810, it was twenty-four degrees, twenty-six minutes west of true north.
4: Ah, that explains the rapist navigation tables. You were looking for the magnetic north for the time of Reuben's death.
1: Well, if it changed, what is it now? And how does that tell us anything?
2: Well, Mr. Pfeiffer, currently magnetic north is 14 degrees, 48 minutes west of true north. That's the difference of 10
3: degrees.
2: Precisely, Miss Edie. It gave Harold a totally wrong position. But
4: Silas was a sailor, a shipmaster, and navigator, so he
1: would know the different variants of the compass. And use true north? I'm afraid I still don't see the connection.
2: His directions were intended for use at some date unknown to him. So I assumed the bearings given were true bearings, that when he said north, he meant true north, which is always the same. But if the bearings were wrong, how did you find
3: the jewels? They weren't wrong, Daddy. Right, Dr. Thorndyke?
2: I drafted up three maps, the one we use with true bearings, the second using corrected magnetic bearings, which may well have gotten us to the correct spot. And the third is uncorrected magnetic
1: bearings. That's the spot Harold dug up. I'm terribly confused still.
3: That's all right, Daddy. We found them. We'll give Uncle Reuben a proper burial like Silas wanted. You don't need to worry about my inheritance now. Dr. Thorndike worked a miracle for us.
2: <laughs> oh, Miss Edie, not a miracle, just science. A pleasure meeting you, Miss Edie. Mr. Pfeiffer. Jervis,
0: I'll see you in the morning at the usual hour. The Mysteries of Dr. John Thorndike. Written by R. Austin Freeman, adapted for radio by Heather Elliott. Starring Dave Johnson as Dr. John Thorndike, Roy Nessel as Dr. Christopher Jervis. Also in the cast were Michael Ingalls as William Pfeiffer, Roy Nessel as Christopher Jervis, Janine Falk as Eddie Pfeiffer, and Brian Grote as Harold Bloom. I'm your announcer, Ryan Barker. Sound design and dialogue editing, Jay Charles. With financial support from Kim Abbey members of the RTP Repertory Company, and Soundly, the sound effects platform. You can find this and other series at podcastplayhouse.org or wherever you get your podcasts. This was a Radio Theater Project presentation.